Hello, welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin, and this is Joey. Hey. And today we're talking about Birdman, or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. Do you really think you'll be ready for opening tomorrow? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, previews are pretty much a train wreck. We can't seem to get through a performance without a raging fire or a raging heart on. I'm broke. I'm not sleeping, like, you know, at all. And uh, this play kind of starting to feel like a miniature deformed version of myself that just keeps following me around and, like, hitting me in the balls with a... Like a tiny little hammer. I'm sorry, what was the question? Never mind. This is a dark comedy. Directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. So glad you could you did that and not me. I hope uh, I did that right. Mom, <laughs> let me know if I mispronounced his last name. Tweet at us if you, <laughs> you can't pronounce things. Uh, cast includes Beetlejuice, 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 Edward Norton's punchable face, La La Girl, and Alan from The Hangover. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I actually watched it on Amazon Video and YouTube because I watched it twice. Nice. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I I missed you last week, dude. I, it was it sucked not doing an episode. It's been weird. Yeah. So. My desk got all cluttered up because I couldn't move my microphone around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh I, yeah and right now I'm not even in my normal location I'm out here in uh in Detroit roughing land it. yeah did roughing it with the mobile setup so um so whatever we're we're making it work and uh, go ahead and give us the synopsis for this one Joey <laughs> okay a man takes a stroll through New York in his underwear yes an absolutely uh accurate synopsis for this movie uh although if you did mention that to somebody they'd know exactly what movie you're talking about you're probably such right. an <laughs> iconic scene uh let's get right into it joey what were your pros for this film um i really liked the unique fascinating story with the fun stage elements um the fact that it almost never cuts is more than just a gimmick which i find really fascinating it's meta in several different ways that makes it accessible to all types of audiences it's deeply cynical about the industry it's a part of and it's vague in a way that really promotes discussion i i definitely agree uh, with all that, especially that last thing, because I think there's so many great topics to uh, discuss after you watch this film. Um, so yeah, I, I I liked the cinematography. The like the whole the movie is a, is essentially one long shot, uh, yes. which is really cool. And I mean, it's full of ridiculous long shots. Um, like I, there are transitions in there, but it is really uh, a lot of them are really long shots. Um, the drums are great, especially because I'm still hype on drumming after seeing uh, Whiplash. So I'm, this I'm, is like almost a like when you think of a drumming movie, I think of this movie first before I think of Whiplash because it's so iconic. Just like the this is constant, just the drumming in the background, and like it's such a a subtle way of referencing this movie when you see like something that's talk that just has kind of drums in the background and the camera kind of moves real smooth and stuff. You're like, Oh, it's Birdman. They're doing Birdman. It's I cool. like that. No, I like that too, because uh, ever since I've seen whiplash, I have been the laziest referencer uh, with whiplash. I'm like, I see drums anywhere. I'm like, Oh, whiplash. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a lazy reference. But, uh, but yeah, I really like the drums. I think it really ties uh, the, the scene, like some of the transitions together and 
it goes so well with the dialogue, and we'll dive into that a little bit later when we get to the quotes. Um, I think there's some really powerful performances. I think Edward Norton is the best actor in this movie, but I also think Michael Keaton is good, and I enjoyed Emma Stone's performance as well. Um, and that's important when you like that you have good performances from your actors when they're discussing some of the things they're discussing in this movie, like mm-hmm. real art and holding theater above like the cinema. And uh, so I think they deliver on that. This movie exists in like the universe of real life, basically. Uh, like it creates some new celebrities, like Michael Keaton. Like doesn't exist in this world. Neither does Edward Norton. You know, right. like they are uh, Regan Thompson. Although that would and... be kind of funny if they met. <laughs> like <laughs> he referenced Michael Keaton somehow. Although very confusing. <laughs> that yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you know, like they talk about Brad Pitt and uh, and, and Jeremy Renner, um, so that stuffs that's I, I like that too because um, it adds like an extra layer of realism in there, uh, which also adds to the legitimacy of some of the things they're talking about, right? Because they are talking about like fame and uh, like whether they're the things they work on matter. So you can use the context of real life to determine that. Uh, so it contains a realistic and unique story that I really like. Um, you know, it's I'm always going to put this in my pros when you come up with an original idea i'm going to give you a thumbs up for that because tired (laughs) of i mean we keep saying that you know every time but we've been watching a lot of very unique movies so right and i mean those are the ones they're going to lend themselves to making a podcast about but uh in in a world where there are all these sequels i will take the original stories um the unreliable narrator makes you question what you're seeing uh, which is a really fun aspect that this movie constantly plays with yes. uh, that I really like. So let's move on to our cons, and uh, I'll go first, I guess. Um, okay. So when I first saw this movie, I was so blown away, and I saw this movie years ago. Um, I was so blown blown away by the um, like seamless transitions, and this time when I was watching it, there are a lot more, like, I don't know, transitions than I expected or that I okay. remembered, you know? Um, so in my mind, I think I had just held this movie at a point where I was like, it's really like three cuts, but it's it's substantially more than that. <laughs> but I don't want that to hang over too hard, but um, it would be crazy to see a movie of this length truly be like one or two cuts. But there is, I think there is one that was like, a, a, it was like, it was so crazy. It was like one of the most expensive movies ever made. And it had like 300 extras or something. And it was all one long shot. It was, I don't even know. I think it was like 90 minutes or something. I don't know what it's called. I'm doing a very bad job of explaining what it is. But <laughs> but you, you know what I'm talking about. Though. Like, I know it, of one that, that was one long shot. And it took, them like, it took them like three tries, I think, to get the whole thing. Um, and it was just, you know, an unbelievable amount of production. Well, yeah. Do you remember those like viral videos that used to be like, um, the office did a cold open of it, but it w- it's usually like a lip syncing video. This is kind of a reference back. Oh to like, yeah, yeah. Ba- ba- it's like it was just like one of the. My high school did one of those. Yes, exactly, and it's all <laughs> one cut. You yeah. know that kind of thing. So um, it would have been. This is like one step below that. It's this is still very cool, but it's not that you know because there are cuts. Um, and also the scene where Sam and. Uh, and Mike are on like the rooftop and they're doing truth or dare. And she says dare. And he makes her spit on the bald guy's head. He's like, see that bald guy. He's going to walk underneath you spit on his head. Wow. Talk about some accurate spitting. She just spits <laughs> once and gets him and you hear him going, Hey, what the, you know, it's like, okay. 
That's what took you out of the movie? <laughs> yes, it did. I was like, she's going to be that accurate from on top of a rooftop? Come on. Um, okay. <laughs> but obviously, that's kind of a nitpick. <laughs> what were your cons? Uh, okay. Um, I don't know how to how to follow that. but uh, I feel like this movie is a little bit too edgelordy. Um, like, some parts of it feel very much overacted. Um, it's kind of preachy about technology and blockbusters. And there's this whole, like, oh, critics are the enemy of art thing, which um, this is a whole cliche that I don't appreciate very much. I think it's kind of silly, honestly, and misrepresented and all ill-informed. Okay. So. Um, and we'll get into that as well because there's some interesting dialogue surrounding that whole this movie's position there. Um, all right. That, those are our cons. Why don't you lead us in our okay. overall? I got section. so much to talk about in this movie, and I'm, clearly you do too. Um, first of all, the, the soundtrack is amazing, as you mentioned, with the drums being really dynamic. Um, I thought this, I thought this was especially interesting because you saw a lot of those drums in the real world, right? He's walking by somebody and he's playing the drums. He's walking through the uh, wherever he was, Times Square, I guess, and um, they're playing the drums out in the middle. Uh, so like the marching can, band, yeah. Yeah, the marching band. So, like, the drums are part of the environment. When I think that's literally true. I think the drums are supposed to be New York City. And what, because they're always moving, they're kind of like this jazzy feeling. It feels kind of chaotic, but you, you know, it's oddly beautiful, just like life in the city. There's a rhythm to it. But if you, like, aren't paying close attention, it just kind of sounds like random noise. So, I really, really like that. I like that too. I, I like your, uh, the way you, well, I like your interpretation of that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this movie really stands on uh, Michael Keaton's shoulders. And I mean, the rest of the cast is also really exceptional, um, but they pretend to be so many things. And Keaton's portrayal as a tortured artist is really compelling. He, I feel like he plays this part so naturally. It's almost like he was born to play this, which is so strange because it's about... Like, he has to go through all these things to get to this point, and then, like, this is the movie that exemplifies that. It's so interesting. So, I, and, wait, wait. I, are you talking about Michael Keaton? Uh, who who was born to play this part? Was it the... Michael, Michael Keaton, not Riggin Thompson. Okay. So, Michael... But Michael Keaton was born to play Riggin Thompson, as in Riggin Thompson is a... Uh, reflection of michael keaton it's yes he <laughs> I is i don't know how to like how that what, what came first the chicken or the egg in that situation i guess technically michael keaton but it's really cool to see him kind of playing such a personal role that even if you don't know him as a person which obviously neither of us do you can kind of see what he's going through and understand the torture he goes through as an artist to try and you know, do something meaningful. And this movie obviously reflects the play in the movie perfectly as well. It's all really, really nice. It's such a nice symmetry to it that it just, I don't know, really, I really love it. Well, yeah, just to be more uh, explicit, just to, to say exactly what it is, I mean, Michael Keaton was Batman, He, right. which is the equivalent of uh, Riggin Thompson's Birdman. Right. And then his career, I don't know. Like he, I looked at his Wikipedia. He was still in stuff. Um, He's in tons of stuff. I mean, but this movie kind of re-energized him because after this, he was in Spotlight, which I think won awards. Yes, and stuff. So like, and this one, this one won Best Picture, didn't it? It did. So, yeah. He, I mean, he he, he got I mean, a Golden kind of Globe, a I think, for so. Best Actor for this movie too. Yeah, it's awesome. So, and that's I mean, that's really cool to see him kind of come back into this world by playing a like a smaller kind of indie-ish film that has all these interesting like technical stuff going on behind it and it requires a lot of just 
like raw acting, you know, because just like in the movie, he's kind of known as being the guy in the suit. Like, did that require a lot of effort? You know, does that really mean that he was a good actor if he could just, you know, be in a suit? But no, there's there's so much more to him. And yeah, he's able to show that in this movie um, and say that almost explicitly, which I really appreciate. I think it's so, so interesting that, you know, actors kind of take these roles and make these decisions and let us see kind of inside their heads in a way. Right. And it's just, you're so right when saying this is like made for Michael Keaton because it, his life leading up to being in this movie parallels, um, Riggins so well, uh, that it would be almost impossible to have anybody else play this role as well. Like the, not only is his acting superb in the film, but his involvement in the project itself kind of yes. transcends the film uh which is which is really cool which is part, really of, cool. part of the reason why i <laughs> i wanted to watch this movie initially or i was how i was convinced to watch this movie years ago um among other things they were saying because of the the infrequent cuts and mm-hmm. um but also because he was batman and this is him right. kind of getting out of the bat suit also when i saw this movie it was right before spider-man homecoming and uh i was told this was a prequel because he plays <laughs> vulture in spider-man <laughs> homecoming <laughs> yeah ah, birdman returns yeah phoenix rising shout out uh Cooch Boy and Anthony for uh, telling me that this is a prequel. And then, you know, in like the, uh, when he goes into Times Square, yeah. Spider Man is there. Yes. Spider Man is there. And they were like, see, it is a prequel. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh my God. That's really funny. I think, I think the bird aspect of Birdman is almost more apt than Batman. It almost makes more sense for us to have a Birdman than it does to have a Batman, you know, as far as like, iconic characters if you were to come up with a super generic superhero name you wouldn't come up with batman bats are way too obscure of an animal you come up with Birdman. it's much Uh, more right you know what i mean well yeah because birds obviously are uh well i guess yeah they're more mainstream it's like exactly oh he can fly he's bird man not even a specific bird it's just the one like it has (laughs) wings (laughs) but he's also there's also some like Icarus things going on in the like like in the yes. subtext yep. where he's like flying too close to the sun and everything and you know birds fly obviously so that's supposed to be a, a metaphor there too yeah well and, and it's kind of that uh flying too close to the sun obviously it like catching fire and the, there were those images of I guess like a, a comet falling from the yeah. sky just something falling down and burning I like that I didn't think because I was trying to figure out what that was but I like that image of it's Icarus you know it's flying too close to the sun and then burning up on your way down yes yes but that also oh man I just, just thought of this so that whole scene with him and his wife when he's talking about the jellyfish Yes. Right. And he talks about how he was going to kill himself and he walked into the ocean and the jellyfish stung him. And then he like went out. And what I got from that, um, from that scene was that like something that almost kills you or near death experiences are sometimes the things that bring you back to life. Sometimes the things that kind of bring you back into the world and show you what's really meaningful. Maybe the same thing happens when you fly too close to the sun being so close to death reminds you why you should be alive. I like that because I again I also didn't have a uh, I I couldn't conclude why that uh, story was included the jellyfish because you see that's one of the first like ethereal images you're yeah. shown in the film is like a quick just flash of dead jellyfish on the beach so I like that too yeah me too I wrote that down because I thought it was gonna be important I was like jellyfish yes watch out for jellyfish <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention to jellyfish. <laughs> 
So just like you said, like there are impossible things going on in this movie. The very first thing you see of Michael Keaton is impossible. He's like floating off the ground with his legs crossed. And it says to me, like, we are going to be intimate and show you every little detail, but we're never going to pretend that this is actually happening. The way the camera moves from like the roof through the tiny gaps in the windows is such an impressive feat of editing that it brings you straight out of the movie. But it's, I feel like this is exactly what they want. They want to remind you to suspend your disbelief so that you're drawn into the craft, constantly remind you, oh yeah, by the way, we can do this. Oh, by the way, you're watching a movie about movies. <laughs> Make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. It's uh. There, there are some video games that have like a theater mode. Halo 3 mm. is famous for this. Skate 3 uh, was really good. Not only movies that have a 3 in them. Uh, also, I think Modern <laughs> Warfare 3 also had a uh, theater mode. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, one of the cool things about these theater modes in video games is it's a totally virtual environment. Um, and it, what it allows you to do is have these impossible camera angles where you can predict where something will be before before it'll be there so you can have the camera be there just in time you know uh, in a single right. cut you can fly across the map and 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 end up with a close up on somebody's face in a way that would be at the very least extremely difficult to do in a movie if not impossible uh and this movie i think gives me faith that basically anything is possible with enough editing because uh, some yeah. of the ways that like the camera will be you know, on it'll be like come out of the theater, go up a floor, and then through those bars through the window, and then now yeah. we're in the dressing room. It's like what? That's <laughs> not. There's no way you got a real camera through that. And not only that, but once you're in that room, you're in there for a long time, and the camera does other stuff. It's just like yeah, I know. It's so crazy. Uh, it's just amazing. Like, and you can and it pans around the room. Like, it's not a set, right? It's a real location. They're in there, and you can see every corner of it. I mean. It, what this does is it causes you to really focus on different areas of the movie. It, it makes you... Because normally, the camera points to stuff you need to pay attention to, right? But in this movie, it's much more like a play where things happen on stage and you have to make sure you're directing your attention to what's important, right? When you see something in the background, like obviously, we have the luxury of pausing it and kind of figuring out what it is. But in a, in a stage play, when something happens in the background, you need to be, be sure that you're paying attention to that because the camera is not because there is no camera. There's nothing saying pay attention to this. You need to be paying attention to this besides, I guess, maybe the lighting. But even then, it's much more subtle. In a movie, it's much more explicit. It's like, wait, make sure you're watching. Make sure you're watching. And th but this movie, because it never cuts, it doesn't have that luxury, right? It's always doing creative things with conversations, with mirrors, or showing people's faces in different ways so that you can see their reactions, but also maybe just imagine what their reactions are. It's just, uh, it's just such a masterful way of making you rethink the way you can interact with the movie. Yeah, no, I agree. And especially when you put it, uh, when you compare it to the experience of going to see live theater, um, right. you're exactly right. Live theater gives you, I mean, this is a little bit more directing your viewpoint, but still uh, in the film, I mean, but in live theater, you get one perspective for the whole time and you get to decide where you're going to put your eyeballs. Um, yeah. And this movie gives you that opportunity. Also, I just really like how it forces them to create a real location. Once you've been, once you spend enough time in this Broadway theater, you get, you start to recognize it. You yeah. see, when he walks through that hallway where like that fat guy is sitting in the swivel chair it's like oh <laughs> I, I know exactly guy. where he is yeah <laughs> <laughs>
exactly. Yeah, you get a sense of the like the layout of the location, which is so interesting. It's just subconscious almost, but you understand where things are located, where people need to walk, and everything. And yeah, I, I don't know. Like setting that all up is must be really, really interesting, especially like planning out every single shot. The other thing that does is similar to theater is like the transition of time, where there's a lot. There's sometimes where like stuff just kind of. Like the sky will change, right? And like the lights will turn on and off and everything. But it's always kind of slow and methodical, almost as if like one thing is happening at a time, as if people are doing it at a certain rate. But there's also stuff where time just kind of shifts, right? That they call Mike, they call Mike Shiner, and suddenly he's in the theater, right? He they they move down the stairs, and like Zach Halvanakis is like, oh, he's gonna be here, and then there he is. Just like in a theater where time kind of moves more fluidly to flow around with the story, this camera technique allows that to happen and makes you kind of just fall in line with, oh, now it's this time. Now you just have to figure out what's going on. It it requires a more like intensive look at the movie, I guess, or maybe just to pay attention a little bit more. It rewards your attention instead of just kind of explicitly saying 36 hours earlier. Right, you know? right. There's no text <laughs> that pops up and tells you how long it's been. You kind of, which adds kind of to the, um, your disability or just like you're, you're not able to know for certain what's going right. on because they don't explicitly tell you. You exactly. just have to kind of connect the dots and decide, okay, this is what I'm pretty sure is happening. Like uh, the scene where Edward Norton, or rather uh, Mike and Sam are are hooking up above the uh, stage and the camera Mm -hmm. just goes from them to below and there he, Mike is on stage now. And you have to be able to know that's not two mics. It's just a day, the time has passed and it's, uh, yeah, and that's a really cool aspect. It's, you couldn't really do that if you weren't using this format uh, for the film. Exactly. And yeah, it just makes it all so interesting. And it it breaks that kind of fourth wall in a way that reminds you of what you're doing. But I feel like that's the same way that a um a stage play does the same thing where the sets move and everything it's constantly breaking that fourth wall and you just have to be willing to suspend your disbelief over and over again to see that and this movie challenges that there's all these things that he does are seem impossible and it gives you maybe a hint of what's going on but you kind of have to interpret it for yourself that's so true though uh like having to be reminded to suspend your disbelief because I mean you do that with a play all the time and that, and that's almost one of the cool things about plays is where you're like wow they just did that you know like you yeah. you have something dramatic happen on stage like for instance if you see the Phantom of the Opera play and they have they hang um what's his name the guy who is uh, in the who gets hanged yeah the guy who gets hanged <laughs> And, and you're like, holy cow, it really looked like they just hanged that guy, you know? And, um, even though, you know, cause if you thought he actually got hanged and died, you'd start freaking out because you just witnessed a murder. But instead you're like, wow, I wonder how they made that look so real, you know? And that adds to the show. It doesn't take you out of it. Okay. But what about the ending when he shoots his nose off? Right. And everyone just kind of applauds because they think it's fake. Right. Well, like is that is that saying something about how we're so hungry for something real or hungry for like something that's um, I don't know that seems to, to to kind of break that immersion? It almost reminds me of um, what Birdman says to him when he's having his kind of breakdown in the street. And he starts screeching and starts and then he starts to fly. Yes, right before he jumps off that building, he um, 
the Birdman, the like the character is saying like you know he's looking right into the audience. He's addressing the audience and he's saying, "Look at their faces. You know they love this kind of stuff. They want to see the blood and gore and all that." And maybe that's exactly what these theater audiences want too. Even though the critic seems to think that they want their higher class, that they they are of a different breed of art goer. Maybe what they really want to see is blood spilled. I don't know. That's it's it certainly does well for him in the end. Um, even if they initially think that it's just, you know, the blood packet or whatever, like yeah. if, even if they don't, uh, even if they think it was a blank and he didn't actually shoot himself, the reaction that the public gives him after finding out what really happened, it's like, yeah, they wanted this. Yeah. Yeah. They're rewarding that entirely. Yeah. It's okay. So we've, um, we've talked a lot about this movie, about how much it's great, but there's some things I didn't like about it either. Um, I feel like the critic as a villain is a, a cliche that I could have gone without. Like it, it may be true that critics hold a lot of sway and power, but the idea that they are the sole judges of opinion is just simply not true. Um, critics also love the thing that they're criticizing. And like, for example, I wouldn't be making a podcast about movies if I didn't love movies. So like to say that you, to say that a critic is so, um, devoid of love or something or can't appreciate something that's just fun is kind of giving them discredit i think it there's this uh, channel on youtube screen junkies that complains about this all the time about the difference between critics and audiences and how there are certain like uh ratings uh like companies that are coming out there like we're the real critics you know like we're like we're the re- we're the real voice of the audience you know we don't listen to critics and he's like the critics are the, your biggest fans. They're the ones that are going to go see every movie. They're the ones that are going to give you, like, v- like give your work some sort of value to to tell people, oh, you should definitely see this movie. Everyone was sleeping on this movie. I saw this movie and it was wonderful. That like they're the one. They're your the the audience that you need to be playing toward. I don't know. It's a kind of a touchy subject. I think people think that critics are kind of feel like they're above everyone else. But I feel like critics themselves think that they're just one of everyone else. They think they're just an audience member who has an opinion that people listen to. Okay. And, um, and I, I think all that's fair. I kind of interpreted the uh, the response to criticism because he is kind of respectful of her opinion until she prejudges. I'm talking about uh, Tabitha, yeah, yeah, yeah. the critic, until she prejudges what his play is going to be. And her reasoning comes from a place of uh, kind of trying to protect the theater, where she's like, you guys have, and Edward Norton shares this opinion, is like, what right. you guys have going on on the screen, what you've done, these superhero movies, um, and she calls it pornography, um, which... Uh, cartoons and pornography. Yeah, cartoons and pornography. I'm not sure if we've necessarily said that. I'm trying to remember if we had this conversation off mic or on mic, but um, <laughs> like we're... Pornography can be applied not just to explicit porn, like sexual pornography, but also just like visual images. Like uh, a good example of this is the Transformers series, which is mm-hmm. all just like special effects pornography. You know, there's no right. real plot in like building to something that gives you this payoff. It's just all payoff, and it just it, looks cool. It just looks cool, and it and without that anything to support that, it feels hollow. Um, so w- what I got from the critics uh, going ahead and judging, you know, you um, are going to, I'm going to go ahead and cancel your show because of what I've seen from you so far. And at the very least, I can agree with the sentiment that, um, I mean, just like I said at the beginning of this, uh, when we were talking about the pros, like I want something original. I don't want what this like Hollywood just keeps slinging because they know that it's going to be 
popular, right? right. So uh, while I don't agree with her methods of prejudging something, that's I don't see how you can really be an effective critic, uh, which. I don't know. Maybe sometimes I do but, that too. Uh, exactly what you're saying, right? right? It's, she's protecting this environment because she knows that if she gives them a good review, if she does something, you know, if she praises him, then other people are going to jump on this bandwagon and try and do the same thing. They're also going to try and get on in on this and, uh, you know, as a cash grab or a way of staying relevant. It's clear to us watching the movie that Regan Thompson's methods or intentions are good. He cares so much about what he's doing to the point where he's driving himself insane. But, like, obviously that's not clear to her. All she sees is the end product. She doesn't care about his intention. And if he's so successful that, um, you know, other people start copying it, then she's almost culpable in that and ruining the theater experience by filling it with the same kind of trash that she sees on the cinema. So, I guess what, I, I, well, I guess what yeah. I'm trying to say is that her... Um, her initial reaction, even though I don't think that the like the uh, um, her plan to ruin the show without seeing it, I don't think that's fair. Um, but I think her initial reaction is like, okay, wait, this washed up guy who's made all these terrible sequels to his superhero movie <laughs> is gonna try and come in here and take on like take uh, take on the theater and ruin yeah. this too. I get it. I understand that point of view. So I don't think it's unfair to give her as the critic that perception. Right. And but I also don't think that what she's doing is unfair. I think she's playing the game in a, you know, she's not being culpable in this when she sees it could be a problem. She's she's um thinking ahead, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, where just kind of like he's thinking ahead or like these these other guys are thinking ahead or the people who made this movie were thinking ahead about what people are going to think about it so to kind of, you know, m- make it kind of undercut your expectations in in big ways. She's she sees what could happen and tries to prevent it from happening. Maybe it is unfair, but it's like, but just exactly what she says. Like if something happens to you, then, or what is it? I think Shiner says it to him. If something happens to you, if this doesn't go well, Hollywood will welcome you right back. You know, this is, this doesn't mean anything like you, if you fail here, it's not real failure. She like, and maybe that's worth the risk or whatever. But I also would argue that because she gives him that, that uh, arrangement that she says, oh, I'm not going to, nothing you do will impress me. He goes that extra mile and he puts everything on the stage, including his nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I guess um, what I'm trying to get is I don't think that the uh, critics were misrepresented or did, had a bad place in this film. I think she filled a necessary role or at least a, very, a realistic role uh, because it, I think it would be the reaction you'd have as a, you know, storied critic um, and maybe what Mike, um, not Michael Keaton, I keep calling him his real name, Riggin <laughs> Thompson says to her is uh, maybe he goes a little far in his critique of criticism. Um, but it does make sense in the moment that he'd be angry and have things yes. like that to say. Yeah, and that's exactly something that he would say. I don't know. I think that it's a misrepresentation of the critic industry in a way. Uh, like it's showing she is clearly the villain of this story more so than anyone else. And she's kind of introduced late in the story um, when I think what really should have been more of the focus is Riggins com- confrontation with himself and having to overcome this problem that he has where he's constantly undercutting everything he does and constantly rethinking and regretting everything he does. You know, uh, having her there as another an extra enemy, I think just does just makes people hate critics more in a way that was not helpful. Okay. 
And uh, we'll we'll get back into that when we get down to our quotes because that was some of my favorite dialogue from the film is that co- yeah. that conversation. Um, but yeah, so I think this movie is fantastic. I was really excited that we were gonna um, talk about it again. Um, I uh, I think the movie it's it's classified on Wikipedia as a black comedy, which I was confused by because um, I thought that black comedies were like movies that are cast with all black actors that are comedies, <laughs> um, which I think is also maybe a black Probably comedy. Probably what they're called. Yeah, but um, but I mean, I actually looked it up, and apparently a black comedy, just another name for a dark comedy, uh, which is a, uh, you know, a comedic movie that makes light of subject matter that is generally considered taboo or painful mm. to discuss. And I think that that's accurate for this movie. It, it uh, covers some uncomfortable topics, but it does it in kind of an irreverent way that makes them palatable and doesn't really depress you to have them covered. It's more of just you. you it makes it easier to explore. They talk about miscarriage, bad parenting, divorce, not realizing your dreams, social media, um, the fear of not mattering. All these things I think are interesting topics. And uh, by the, the kind of... Uh, the mood this this movie sets, I think, makes it appropriate to tackle these, or at least bring them up. And, For sure. And uh, yeah, so it's a intriguing and realistic and uh, stunning movie. I I like that. I both like and am frustrated by the ending um, because. Oh I, yeah. Yeah. Because you want to know what happens. Yes, I would. I think everybody is uh, wants a satisfying conclusion here, um, <laughs> but. I think that it's also really cool to leave it up to your interpretation, and we'll talk about that too um, a little bit later. Altogether, though, I thought it was a great film. Uh, one of the things, one of the cool Easter eggs that this movie has is because um, they do talk about Twitter a lot in this movie, which um, Twitter has only uh, continued to be relevant since 2014 when they were talking yep. about this. Um, and one of the things that they do is during the interviews, which, okay, actually, we haven't talked about this yet because um, I think that there's a difference between critics and the media um, hmm. the, in the sense that like paparazzi and just like tabloids, I think are, are treated differently than maybe critics specifically in this film, because I love the way that they treat, um, or I, I thought it was funny the way that they portray the interview because they have like yes. the one guy who's very sophisticated and asking all these like, uh, like artsy he's, like, questions. Quoting, yeah. He's quoting some philosopher, you know? <laughs> right. And then, then they have like the tabloid lady who's like, is it true that you've been injecting your face with pig semen? And he's like, what? He's like totally <laughs> like flabbergasted. And she's like, oh, yeah. I'll just say that you've been denying it. Um, which, <laughs> and well, he says, that's not true. And she says, I know, but is it <laughs> or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's like, I, I think it's maybe like, it just made me uh, frustrated in a way that I think is funny. Kind of the way they portrayed yeah. like tabloids and paparazzi. So I actually looked it up because they said, he was like, who said that? And she was like, at, prostate whisperers and um yeah and it's like who the heck is that and in real life i know that twitter is unfairly used uh, to slander people and there's definitely uh unreliable sources that get clout on twitter and end up messing with people's public image but this one is totally ridiculous so i uh, i looked it up and they did have this corresponding tweet. I don't know if the movie company made it or who is responsible for like running this account, but it does exist. It is at prostate whisperer, not whisperers. Um, 
but mm. it, it, they only have 73 followers and they're only t- following 25 people. Uh, but here's their bio. It says, where men's health meets Hollywood's leading actors. I never divulge my sources. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, the, and the profile picture is like this shirtless, hairy dude wearing sunglasses. It's like, it just looks scummy. And um, <laughs> and the tweet is, uh, the, the, the tweet that they're talking about, they're referencing, exists. And it's, hashtag Riggin Thompson's alleged skincare secret, question mark. Daily injections of pig semen. Hashtag Birdman movie. Which I think having it say putting hashtag Birdman movie kind of uh, destroys the illusion, you know? Because you because this movie is supposed to exist kind of in the real world, but having hashtag right. Birdman movie, it's like okay. Um, but they they tweeted this on October or sorry November first. Well, maybe he's referencing the real Birdman movie. Yes, I thought about that too, but at this point, like. At this point in the timeline, that movie would have been really old, and there's sequels to that movie too. So I think that like so saying, yeah, it could have been Birdman movie then. It wouldn't be Birdman, it'd be Birdman movie. Uh, Same way as like hashtag Batman. I guess it. I, I would say hashtag Birdman would make more sense than hashtag Birdman movie because he is Birdman, not in reference to the first Birdman movie. Why are we bringing up that one specifically when there's sequels okay, and fair stuff? Enough. I think it's shaky at best. Um, but <laughs> this uh, this this Twitter account does try to um, keep the. Um, illusion alive they have a tweet about george clooney hashtag george clooney reportedly spent over twenty thousand dollars on state-of-the-art laser hair remover removal for his upcoming honeymoon hashtag george <laughs> clooney wedding and um and they also have hollywood bad boy hashtag mike shiner is headed to broadway let's hope he keeps talk uh, taking those vitamins that keep his coat so luxurious oh my god <laughs> so uh it's pretty cool and th- these tweets all came out um in like november of uh 2014 so it was and i checked the dates there was a like early release of birdman that came out in like select theaters in um October of 2014 and then the wide release in all the theaters was on uh, the 14th of November 2014 so these tweets came out before the wide release so if you were a Twitter head or something you could have gone right out of the theater and look this up and be like oh it's real you know the tweets are here that's cool which is pretty cool although I don't think anybody really did that because this tweet only has 40 retweets and 44 likes so um but I'll retweet it on the Apple chat account so you yeah, guys can it. look at that. Um, so, but I thought that was kind of cool because this movie references Twitter so heavily. Um, I think it is appropriate that they would include uh, the actual tweets. Okay, let's uh, let's get into our quotes, and we've got a bunch of them. So let's get right into it. My first one, ready? How about uh, uh, Jeremy Renner? Who? Jeremy Renner. He was nominated. The, oh, okay. He was the Hurt Locker guy. He's an Avenger. They put him in K2. God, I can't believe this. So this is when uh, he's uh, trying to find a replacement for the guy that a, a light fell on his head. Um, and he's like, oh, he's naming all these actors. Um, and Jerry Renner, of course, comes up. I love Jerry Renner. I think he's a fantastic actor. Um, highly underrated. Anyway, um, I think this is interesting just because he like every time there's a new Superman or super, superhero movie, it kind of cheapens what Birdman is was right like he becomes less special every time somebody else puts on a cape and fights crime which kind of reflects um some other themes that go on in this movie but i just think it's interesting how he 
he reacts to this where he's like, oh, everyone knows who he is. Oh, wait, like he's just he's just like me. He's riding off of that same success that I rode off of so long ago. And, you know, can I ever differentiate myself or am I always going to be in the shadow of other people? Yeah. And um, not only is it like funny because they're name dropping these actual Hollywood comics, but yeah, it, it kind of brings you into that perspective. It's like the Avengers exists in this world, Jeremy Renner exists in this world, and being a superhero doesn't set you that far apart from your peers, at least in the acting world. So. Not at all, yeah. Uh, okay, so continuing on the uh, real life actor references. You know, the last time I flew here from LA, George Clooney was sitting like two seats in, in front of me with a nice pair of cufflinks and that rocking chin. We ended up flying through this really, really horrible storm. I mean, it was, the plane was like rattling and shaking. And uh, all the people on board were crying. And crying, praying, right? I just sat there. They're crying. I sit there. And I'm thinking, oh boy. Next morning, when Sam looks at the paper, it's going to be Clooney's face on the front page. Not mine. You know? Boom. I noticed this throughout the film, and, um, like, Riggin is very conceited. He likes to... (laughs) (laughs) He likes to always reference himself in the in the conversation like when uh what's her name comes up and she's like i'm finally this is my first broadway opening night and he's like mine too which is a fine yeah. it's fine to say that you know it's true so you know i kind of she's talking to him she's saying like you know i look up to you and like thank you for giving me this opportunity and he's like kind of bringing himself down to her level to say you know it's also my first time but i at that point i was like of course he's gonna say mine too because he everything is about <laughs> him uh he is a classic conceited guy and so this is a great example where he's like like if he had died in a plane he wouldn't think about how that would affect his family members except for how they would perceive his like stardom being overshadowed by george clooney's right yeah exactly and i mean this is true um, mike shiner says this to him too when he, they're on stage he says that he rewrote the mood like the the play and everything so he had all the best lines he wrote writing acting and directing in his in his like broadway premiere it's just like how much more can you just like jerk yourself off it's like right real question but at the same time he's like you can see that he's kind of tortured by this he feels like he has to do everything himself right he thinks he has to right if you want something done right you gotta do it yourself that kind of seems to be his kind of mentality and it, it doesn't seem to his conceited nature doesn't seem to help him at all he still sleeps in the street and he's still like has all these weird relationships with all the women that he's he's been with so it's just he's he's kind of, he's so messed up in this way um and maybe this maybe his arrogance is one of the thing driving factors that actually kind of promotes his own art in a way it's um it's like a complex way of him interacting with the world and like if that makes any sense yeah no i i think that he wouldn't be in this situation if he wasn't this kind of crazy you know he had like to to take on to be that ambitious with his first broadway uh performance because he thinks so highly of himself or he wants to be admired in the way that he thinks he deserves to be admired so he feels like he has to take on this great challenge Um, right well he he also says this uh did you know farrah fawcett died the same day as michael jackson and then as his ex-wife is leaving the room she tells him that he's not farrah fawcett 
which is, I thought was like a very nice thing for her to say. It's kind of to legitimize his concern, right? He's He says that as like a weird trivia fact, but you know underneath what he really means is like, am I going to, am I, is all the work I've done going to end up being worthless? And right. she says, no, of course not. I um, actually, I kind of, because there, there is some, uh, uh, some heat going on in that uh, conversation. I wasn't sure if that's what she meant or if she was like, if you died, you wouldn't even be Farrah Fawcett. Like, it wouldn't even oh, be a wow. fun fact that you died on the same day as Michael Jackson. <laughs> People would straight up not even know. <laughs> but uh, you're That's right. not what I got from no, it. No, I think you're right. <laughs> okay. And then to continue this, this is soon after this. That's what you always do. You confuse love for admiration. So there is this motif of love in this movie. Uh, when it, the movie first starts, uh, it's showing you the title and it's showing you all the, the letters in the um, for the actors and the director and the movie. It does that in alphabetical order with the drum beats, but it also shows the word amor on there, which is Spanish for love, right? Yes, that is correct. Good. That's That was, that was a gamble on my part. <laughs> There's also the play that he's doing, which is called What Do We Talk About When We Talk About Love? Um, and, of course, he's he's kind of in a relationship with one of the actresses. He has a love for his ex-wife and a love for his daughter. Um, there's these relationships that go on between the cast members as well. So there's, there's a lot of love talked about in this movie. Um, and this, this one uh, quote where she, she's talking about love and admiration, I feel like is extra poignant just because um, he, this is how he interprets love. He interprets love as in admiration, or at least one for the other. He, he sees his interaction with the audience, his interaction with people in the world. If they admire him, then they must love him. You know, when he's flying through the city, right? Uh, Birdman is telling him that this is where he belongs. He belongs above everyone else. So everyone could admire him. Everyone could see him as this thing to love um, I don't know. I think that's interesting when because the whole the whole idea of what we do, what do we talk about when we talk about love? Is the characters in the the play struggle to define what love is, and you can see him doing the same thing in this exact quote. Well, I think it also goes the other way too, because his wife says, I, I forgot what it was, but I, I think it was the third superhero movie he did. She was like, um, she basically says that she still loved him after that movie. Oh, yeah. And so it was it was that ridiculous comedy he did with Goldie Hawn. Oh right, right, right. And, but and she was like, <laughs> I still loved you after that. And you can you confuse um, love for admiration. Maybe that movie did suck. Maybe she even thought it sucked. But right. it doesn't mean that she would stop loving him. Uh, but the way he sees him, he sees him as one and the same. So if he sees that as a failure, he would think, Oh, even the people in my life, my wife, my kid, um, they'll stop loving me. Because right. my work isn't worth admiring. So I think it works both ways. It would not, I mean, it reflects on himself too, right? I mean, he clearly doesn't love himself. He's always putting himself down about what he's doing, thinking that he should go back to Hollywood. And he tells himself that he was miserable, but he was fake miserable back then. So like, <laughs> he's all... He doesn't, he doesn't admire what he's doing right now. At least he's trying to convince himself he should. And for that reason, he can't love himself. 
Right. I um it's interesting that he has these coping mechanisms to deal with the voice of Birdman in his head. Because yeah. it, it always you can tell like when it comes back, it's not a new thing. He's not like, Who is that? Who's saying this? You know, like <laughs> he, he recognizes the voice and he even has ways that he like tries to stop it from um, you know, causing chaos in his life. So I it would be interesting to see what came before this where you know, Birdman first started talking to him and maybe he didn't have a way to deal with it. These, right. like, this is a mental formation and I, uh, you know, I am blocking this mental formation, you know, if, if he, when it really would just cause him to do stuff. And it even does in this one. He, I would say that his, uh, superpower usage where he's destroying the things in his, um, in his dressing room, that is probably, that's a bit of the Birdman influence there. For sure. For sure. It's definitely not a healthy way of going throughout life by smashing everything. He smashes so many things. I was wondering if that was like part of his contract. It was like, I want to smash a glass in this room. And so they gave him like 10 glasses to smash. (laughs) (laughs) He does smash a lot of stuff. Yeah. Even outside of his uh, dressing room, like he does it in the bar. He like throws the drink. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's part of what makes him so tortured is his inability to distinguish love from admiration. Okay, now on to the next quote. Let's go. Walk. Where are we going? Get you some coffee. Did I do something to disrespect you? Not yet. Look, I have a lot riding on this fucking plane. Oh, is that right? Yeah. People know who I am. (laughs) Bullshit. They they don't know you, your work, man. They know the guy from the bird suit who goes and tells coy, slightly vomitous stories on Letterman. Well, I'm sorry if I'm popular, Mike. You know, I don't give a shit. Popular? Popularity is... This bloody little cousin of prestige, my friend. Okay, I don't even know what the fuck that means. So. Well, yeah. it, 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 it means my reputation is riding on this, and that's worth a, a, a lot. A lot, exactly. Right. Fuck right. you. Yes. If this doesn't work out for you, you fuck off back to your studio right. pals and dive back into that cultural genocide you guys are perpetrating. You know, the douchebag's born every minute. That was P.T. Barnum's premise when he invented the circus, and nothing much has changed. And you guys know that if you crank out any toxic piece of crap, people will line up and pay to see it. But long after you're gone, I'm gonna be on that stage, earning my living, bearing my soul, wrestling with complex human emotions. That's what we do. Oh, so that, is that what tonight was about? You wrestling with complex emotions? Tonight was just about seeing if it's even alive, seeing if it can leave. No, this isn't the backlot, Riggin. This is New York City. This is how we do things. Where are you going? They have coffee here. I love this scene. I love the from the when they walk out onto the street until they enter the bar. Like even if this movie wasn't shot in the style that it is, where it's all long cuts, this could exist in a film on its own. Just one long cut sequence, um, because not only is the dialogue uh, meaningful and they're actually saying something, having a conversation of this kind of cultural genocide, which is kind of referring to like Hollywood and these blockbuster films versus complex human emotion and exploring those, which in this case is kind of like the theater. Um, But they discuss that in this way that has a a rhythm to it Um, (laughs) and it literally has a rhythm to it because they have the drums in the background but the way that they speak actually follows the drums in a way uh, similar to like a freestyle rap Um, especially you can really get a feeling for this when the drum drops out and uh, and Edward Norton says his line about the circus. He's like, a douchebag is born every minute. That's what P.T. Barnum, uh, that was like when he invented the circus. Yeah, yeah. P.T. Barnum said when he invented the circus. Yeah. Right, and like, and it's, it, it sounds 
good. Like he finishes that right. line and then you get the drums right back in and then they keep going. Um, which I just think the like the art direction for this one particular sequence is just amazing. You can go back and watch the scene again and it's just so satisfying. It really is. <laughs> it's so cool. Plus it brings up a topic that I think, um, you know, if you're a uh, fan of the cinema, it at least has to cross your mind. What is the effect of these movies that aren't ambitious that are really just rehashing the things that we've already gotten uh but they make the most money like star wars sequels and you know marvel movies and uh you know all these they're not original but they're selling the best um what is that effect and it it does it remove value from these more ambitious and more difficult and slightly less palatable projects um you know is it is it uh well, that's the thing is like, it's, it's, it's going to go somewhere. This, that's the thing that I find so interesting is that if the studios can't deliver, people want this kind of stuff and maybe they don't vote with their cash like they should, but the, the like, streaming services, independent creators, you know, YouTube has a, like a, a growing like a cinema, um, like workspace, I guess I should, I could say like a place where people make short movies. There's all these other avenues now that exist to create great works of art through movie making, through, you know, stuff seen on screen, moving images. The big studios may think that the safe bet is to do these things or whatever, but people are going to get tired of them eventually. And eventually it's like nostalgia will, will run out because every time you, you know, go to the nostalgia bank, there's a little bit less there in the, in the coffers and doesn't fill up very easily. It takes a lot for that to come on. You know, it's like coal where it takes, you have to plant it or a tree to plant it a long time ago in order for it to make sense later. Um, but I don't know, like, I think there's something to be said about, you know, kind of a cheapening of the art by making it so mass produced. But I also think that like, this is such a subjective thing that people are always going to react with their feelings. And there's eventually going to come to a point where people are just going to say, oh, I don't like that anymore. Look at Transformers, right? Transformers had four very successful movies. The fifth one was terrible. Nobody went to see it. Everyone just decided not to see it. And it was like just as cheap and silly as all the other ones. And they had to restructure how they're doing everything. Now they have a different movie that came out. Obviously, they're still riding off of that, that success, but they changed their tactic completely. And it's because of audience re- like reaction. We're only becoming better at, or studios are only becoming more receptive to what people are saying because people are have a better voice more than ever today. Right, and I, uh, I also don't like to group all like b- Hollywood blockbusters as bad. You know, there's a place for that. Um, I, like, hopefully, obviously, you don't want everything to be the same. But I really enjoy the Marvel movies. I don't watch men. I don't watch many of them. But I think Dwayne Johnson makes that sort of type of film uh, where it's like, watch Dwayne Johnson jump out of a tower into another tower. The yeah. movie, you know, like. <laughs> but there, there's enjoyment in that, so it's not wholly bad. Uh, so I think it, it is kind of strong language to consider that to be cultural genocide. Well, it's just a, I but mean, from I, his perspective, you know, like. I can understand what he's what he's saying, even if he's totally in his own little bubble, right? Yes. He's thinking, oh, like amongst my art friends, I'm sorry, my theater friends, we all think the same way, even though they never even consider outside perspectives. So I don't know. I a lot of things that Mike says in this movie are very empty to me because he doesn't he doesn't stand for anything. 
He's a, he's as fake as he pretends to be on stage. Well, that's the thing. He he is being fake except when he's on the stage, right? That's the only time he's being when he's not acting. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's the opposite of real. <laughs> the opposite of meaning something. Uh, right, and also consider like referring to your work as like, exploring complex human emotions. Like, how pretentious can you be? It, it, he's so pretentious. Okay, here here's my rant about Mike first. First, okay, just a yeah, he is. He is kind of a classic method actor. Yes. Where he's, he, everything has to be in place. But I was talking to Jenny about this yesterday. I think method acting is so silly and dumb. I don't think, I don't have a lot of respect for method actors because I don't think you, uh, um, making the rest of the world have to conform to your conditions for, to be a good actor means you are a good actor. It just means that you're a dick. Like, if you all it is is an excuse for you to bring a subject matter that is um, normally unpalatable to the real world to the real world in a safe environment, and everyone thinks you're doing it because you're an artist, but really you're just drawing attention to yourself because really you're a terrible actor and you can't pretend to be something else on stage. Okay. Maybe I don't understand what it's supposed to be. Maybe I'm like misrepresenting this, but this is how I feel, and I feel like when he says, "Oh, your gun doesn't scare me because it has a little rubber thing in it," it's like. You're an actor. Pretend that it scares you, you idiot. Like <laughs> the people making the movie, the people that like assemble the people to make the movie, to assemble the actor stuff, are not the actors normally. They're the ones. They're like the director. They're the producers. They're the the writer. They're the person that came up with an idea, and they need people to fill that role on stage. And if you can't pretend to do that, then get somebody who can, because there's tons of people out there that are actors that pretend to be something other than what they are in that environment have to be if that makes any sense that was a weird sentence but i think i came home with that right i get i get your point though although the heath ledger stands are gonna come for you joey but <laughs> heath ledger died because of his like inability to control the like situation he put himself in is that worth it right no i mean some people would argue it's like but look at the performance we got um but you know i, I would also argue that at a certain point it doesn't matter like you're if the if performance gets to a certain level, it's going to be great no matter what. If you put yourself through that much pain and everything, obviously, like, you know, if you can pull yourself out of it, then yes. But if you're just doing it to be a dick, to, to gain attention for a marketing ploy. Right. You don't have to look that far into our own... Uh our own movie catalog to find a counterexample to Heath Ledger. J.K. Simmons is absolutely phenomenal in Whiplash, and he very famously was super nice on set to offset how like mean he was being while they were rolling. He didn't want people to think that he was this monster. So when they right. when he wasn't rolling, you know, he was being super polite, super nice to everybody because he's like, I'm not this person, and he's not a method actor. So um, I think you, I think I, you make a good point. It's, I mean, the point, the reason why we have movies is to explore ideas that we can't explore in the real world, right? It's talking about like murder. It's talking about somebody who can shoot their nose off their face on a stage in a safe place that we can understand and appreciate it as a work of art. To bring that to the real world, that level of intensity or that level of like, oh, I don't care about anything. It's just not being a person and it's being a kind of just weird dick so that you can have people act a certain way around you. I don't know. It's just not impressive to me and i'm tired of this whole idea and mike mike really exemplifies why i hate this more so than why i think it's a good idea right he's a terrible person in this movie um now i don't <laughs> think that i think that he's portrayed well by edward norton but the character of i love mike, edward norton he's so he's good. so good i i <laughs> forgot that he was in this movie because it'd been a while and i was like oh 
Yes, him and Zach Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> I forgot he was in this too, uh, but he's great. He was also really. He good. was really good. He's um like. I love Zach Galifianakis because he's very funny as like the 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 jester or the fool. Like he, it, yeah, yeah. I, obviously, I'm talking about the Hangover. Like he he plays that role really really well. But he's also just a solid actor in general. Um, and so I and he's great in this movie in his limited role, but still he's great as. Uh, and he does have some like physical comedy too, which is always appreciated. Yes. <laughs> he's uh yeah i love me some zach galifianakis okay where were we what's our next quote our next quote yeah, i have right here ready wait no that's not right. oh, that's i think i've quote. got it yep okay god this is my career this is my chance to finally do some work that actually means something it means something to who you had a career dad before the third comic book movie before people started to forget who was inside that bird costume you were doing a play based on a book that was written 60 years ago for a thousand rich old white people whose only real concern is going to be where they go to have their cake and coffee when it's over. Nobody gives a shit but you. And let's face it, Dad, you are not doing this for the sake of art. You are doing this because you want to feel relevant again. Well, guess what? There is an entire world out there where people fight to be relevant every single day, and you act like it doesn't exist. Things are happening in a place that you ignore. A place that, by the way, has already forgotten about you. I mean, who the fuck are you? You hate bloggers. You mock Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important, okay? You're not important. Get used to it. Okay, so... um. (laughs) <laughs> they give Emma Stone her monologue in this movie. Yes. She delivers it um, loudly. and uh, <laughs> That's also how I would describe it. <laughs> but I do like, the, the again, going back to kind of the uh, black comedy aspect of this film, the idea of not mattering. And I know that this is in the context, uh, in the context of a actor whose whole job is to like, you know, have a lot of clout that's good for their career so they can be in more stuff and sell more tickets or put butts in seats, all that stuff. But we now live in a age of social media where mm-hmm. you can be your own PR uh, firm, I guess. And for better or for worse. For better or for worse, yes. You can accurately, maybe not accurately, I can say you have a number that says this is how important you are. This is how much you matter. And... Um, as far as I can tell, that is has been a really negative impact on a lot of people's uh, perception or self-image, you know? Um, Definitely. And, like, it's, uh, it's kind of scary. She's like, you, just like everybody else, is scared that you don't matter. And uh, whether it's likes or um, shares or listens on your podcast yeah. or, or reviews. Please review our podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> It, it's it's something that we all have to deal with. That's true. Oh man, I just lost my train of thought. She's um. Although I don't agree with everything she says here too, because I'm kind of against the idea of putting too much weight on social media. Um, and she she's kind of going all the way where she's like, you don't have a Facebook page. You don't. She sounds she sounds so like. I don't know. It makes me cringe every time she when I hear her say, "You hate bloggers. You mock Twitter." You don't even have a Facebook page. You're uh, I, I really like Emma Stone, but she is this scene in particular. I did not like her delivery very much. I didn't feel I, I felt like it was really over the top and 
and like came out of nowhere almost and then like it kind of disappears really quickly like the way she reacts right after she says this is really is really nice i, I love the way her face kind of like falls yes that was cool yes but her while she was saying this it really i don't know it struck me the wrong way uh, this is not one of the strongest parts of the movie i can explain it perfectly joey and you'll understand exactly why she did that and you'll and you'll immediately you'll you'll change your mind instantly um okay, tell me she was high she had, okay. she had just smoked <laughs> weed she was acting weird normally she's uh she's a fantastic <laughs> actress but she had just smoked a whole joint right because she's a method actor Scott <laughs> <laughs> smoked that weed for real well, I remember what I was going to say. So this also reflects something else she says in the movie where she's showing him the uh, the toilet paper roll where she marks out like every 10,000 years. Yes. And she shows like how small human history is. Her coping mechanism. Right. And I think, I, I think that kind of re- is relevant to this too, right? Where it's in social, with the age of social media, it becomes even more clear how little you matter. Existentialism kind of runs rampant. You can see just how many other people are trying to do exactly what you're doing and trying to, you know, succeed in the exact same way that you're trying to succeed. And why does it all matter? What does it all mean? You know, how can I make my own way in the world if everyone is doing the same thing that I'm doing? And uh, maybe that was always true, but now it's more clear than that. It's more clear now than ever. Yeah, which is, uh, I mean, there, it's simultaneously um, hopeful, but more depressing i think because you you, well (laughs) i think if you think about it for a long time it is hopeful right well because yodel boy you know who and and before the internet i refuse to acknowledge yodel boy (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't totally disagree with that position but you know yodeling in a walmart 20 years ago was not going to get you a world tour uh but now that possibility exists so That's right. it's, uh, it is kind of cool to just say it's like, now everyone's got a chance. You don't just have to know the record company to become a famous rapper. Now you can color your hair badly and have terrible face tattoos. If you've got a SoundCloud account, you've got a chance. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> that's um, all you need. Right. So <laughs> Those it, are the ingredients. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you can look at it however you want to. But I think right. that um, just the net has been cast wider for uh, people to kind of have this uh, existential dread and, and, and question their, yeah. their their own validity and how much they matter. So, but, but, I mean, the inevitable conclusion, I think, is that it it has to matter to you. And that's what he says, right? Uh, that's what Reagan says to her. It's like, it matters to me. It's important to me. It may not be important to the rest of the world, but to me, it matters. It is the whole world. And I think that's the exact right like the exact right perspective to take. Um, it doesn't matter what other people are doing. What really matters is whether you can make yourself happy and whether you can you know, move toward a world that you think is better There's a, in your own small way. Do you know who Gary Vee is? No. You heard of Gary Vee? He's this guy. He's been on the internet for a long time. Like he, he's like this. I don't know. Influencer isn't the right word, but he's like a he's like a motivational speaker for your internet like persona. And he always talks about like just keep grinding. You know, if you're making something that you really think is good, keep doing it. Don't worry about the views. Don't worry about the likes. Don't worry about your subscri- subscriber count. Keep building. Keep doing what you do. And he's I know some people make fun of him because he's like overly optimistic, but he's uh, I, I like a lot of the things that he says um, because he's like if you, if it's valuable to you then it's worth it's worth it to keep going even if you don't have the vanity numbers uh which are like the likes and subscribers and all that stuff right um this also kind of includes the little quote that is on his uh is on the mirror uh in the dressing room this is in uh 
right in Reagan's uh, uh, dressing room. It's a thing is a thing, not what is said of that thing. And yeah. I totally subscribe to that. That uh, I like that a lot. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what everybody else thinking or is saying. You know, it's it is what it is. And if that's valuable to you, then that's good enough. Um, which I think is a helpful message. For sure. Okay, I got the next quote. I don't even know if it's any good or not. I didn't. That's true. I haven't read a word of it or even seen a preview. But after the opening tomorrow, I'm going to turn in the worst review anybody has ever read. And I'm going to close your play. Would you like to know why? Because I hate you and everyone you represent. Entitled, selfish, spoiled children. Blissfully untrained, unversed, and unprepared to even attempt real art. Handing each other awards for cartoons and pornography. Measuring your worth in weekends. Well, this is the theater. And you don't get to come in here and pretend you can write, direct, and act in your own propaganda piece without coming through me first. So break a leg. This is what the uh, critic says to him when he's uh, confronting her. Tabitha, yeah. Uh, yes. And I, we've kind of already covered a lot of this, but there's one aspect that I thought was really interesting. Reading over this again, she says that he is blissfully untrained, unversed, and unprepared. You may even say that he is ignorant and that's exactly what saves his play elaborate on that because the name of the movie is the unexpected virtue of ignorance so mm -hmm. his ignorance his untrained unverse and unpreparedness is the thing that gives the play its raw power and his inability his ignorance in thinking that he can shoot himself on stage or whatever he's trying to do that also aids him in his um kind of unabashed and unselfconscious a virtue in making something that is truly vulnerable i like that i um especially because you know it is this movie's kind of weird because it has two titles you know so i would <laughs> hope that the other one that they're including in there is meaningful and i think it is uh exactly for this reason but and, and like we were talking about earlier she's kind of like in a way trying to protect theater from the uh the what did we call it the cultural genocide that's coming mm. from the from hollywood but at the same time you're blissfully untrained and unprepared to even attempt real art oh you should know you should know that if you're a critic you should know that you don't have to be trained you know real art is um you know, it's authentic expression. It's not, right. it's not being able to do it. I mean, sometimes, you know, like ballet and in like playing an instrument. Yeah. There's definitely that, the part of it where it's like there's skill and that's, that's mm. good to have. Technique. Yeah. Technique. Um, but it's, I don't think that there are concrete requirements for art. I think that if you start to believe that way, then you, uh, you box yourself out from being able to appreciate art. I a hundred percent agree. So it's uh yeah I I I'm not again reading over this I I'm starting to agree with your um at least in a, in a way with your saying that making the critics the bad guys in this movie is a little bit unfair like say having her say this is is like all right right it really classifies her as this like bigot in a way like her she she doesn't she doesn't understand the thing that she's talking about right so uh okay let's uh let's hear Riggins' response to this. You know, what has to happen in a person's life for them to become a critic, anyway? What are you writing, another review? 
Is it any good? Is it? Is it bad? Did you even see this? Let me read it. I will call the police. Oh, call the police. Let's read you. Callum. Callum's a label. Lackluster. That's just the labels. Margin. Margin, are you kidding me? It sounds like you need penicillin to clear that up. That's a label too. These are just all labels. You just label everything. That's so fucking lazy. You just, you're a lazy fucker. You're a lazy. Do you know what this is? Do you even know what that is? You don't. You know why? Because you can't see this thing if you don't know how to label it. You mistake all those little noises in your head for true knowledge. Are you finished? No, I'm not finished. There's nothing in here about technique. There's nothing in here about structure. Nothing in here about intention. It's just a bunch of crappy opinions backed up by even crappier comparisons. You write a couple of paragraphs. And you know what? None of this costs you fucking anything. You risk nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, I'm a fucking actor. This play cost me everything. So I'll tell you what, you take this fucking malicious, cowardly, shittily written review and you shove that right the fuck up your wrinkly, tight ass. So, um, I, I love <laughs> this rant. Uh, I felt personally attacked. <laughs> I also kind of felt personally attacked, although I do want to be clear, as always, I am not a critic. I am. Uh, I just like movies. I like talking about movies. But he does make a point. You can't just... I, I don't know. I think what's what's kind of funny is it's this is a paradox. He's criticizing her methods of criticism. Right. Right? And she could turn around and say that his... He's calling her lazy, which is just a label. Exactly. So um, m- more, I, I think... The reason I wanted to include this for this is not because I think that what he's saying is necessarily all that true. I think the message I get out of this is that don't you don't have to listen to critics. You can make your own yeah. opinion, and I think that that's good. I think that's that can be liberating if you uh, if you get too sucked into listening to other people's opinions and letting them just define it for you. It's part of the reason why when we go in to do these podcasts, I try not to look at other people's reviews of this movie or critical reception because I want my reception to be totally authentic. But what you just said is interesting too, because it's almost impossible to like unsee something if yes. someone points something out to you and like ruins something for you then it's like ah, oh, now that's all i can think of and that's all i can you know now i can't see it any other way it has to be that way and yeah i don't know i i always find it really valuable when i'm watching a critic or listening to someone talk about something when i disagree with their entire thesis when they don't like a movie that i like or they like a movie that i don't like i always find that really interesting because that's where the edges meet and i can see oh like i you know, in general, I usually agree. It's like, oh, yeah, I hate this one. Oh, yeah, this one actually has a lot of depth to it that I didn't really appreciate. But sometimes it's like, no, you guys totally missed the point. Or no, uh, like, you guys are seeing something there that's not there. So, I don't know, I really like that, uh, that well, your interpretation of that, where you don't have to listen to the critics. And I, yeah, I totally agree. And, and then I think that the that's another weakness of this movie, is that they put all the weight on Tabitha's review. And I don't think that's true at all. It's more so about word of mouth, about what people do and say afterward, right? How they spread the message themselves. Right. And I don't know if it's, it's kind of like, this is New York, and 
like this review makes or breaks the show you know like i could see that being real it just seems like a it just seems like a, a weird like structural device it'd be like oh we need a villain we need to have her be have all the power and everything so she needs to be able to catch the snitch and get 150 points wait that's that's something else <laughs> well i um but again just getting back to why exactly i wanted to, to talk about this because this scene is great they have such close-up camera angles and again this whole movie benefits from this no-cut kind of thing which makes every performance that much more authentic um yeah. because it's it's these kind of this face-off between this evil critic and uh our protagonist and it's it's wonderful performance from both of them uh so it's it's, it's just another really nice scene and uh it is long but i think it's worth appreciating for sure all right i got one more ready yep A film. You people are full of shit. So this is when he's about to jump off the building. I love this like, one. <laughs> he's like standing up there, and then somebody's like calling from the other side, like, "Hey, like, what's going on?" And of course, like in this situation, especially on Broadway, it's like, "What is going on? Is anything you see real?" <laughs> I like this uh, especially because. Um, it reminds me of like those commercials that always say "real people, not actors," uh. implying implying that actors aren't real people <laughs> and like i think that this is kind of like uh exactly how people see it you know it's like actors kind of exist in this weird world where like nothing is real and everything is exaggerated and you see that throughout all of the actors in this movie are just freaking insane they're always like so emotionally high strung and so like you know out of sync of what's going on it takes someone else coming in to have some sort of rational mind to say like all right calm down we can't do this we can't do this whatever it's just a i don't know it's like this break between actors and real people it's this idea that if you're an actor you're kind of a different breed of human being it's also a funny line um it is that <laughs> occurs at a point in the movie where you're not sure what's going on it's another one of these like why is he flying moments yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah. uh and this, I mean, so many of those have a pseudo explanation, right? Because he flies up, but then he's not flying. He's not floating above the building. He's standing on it, you know? So you could easily right. say he just climbed to the top of this building. Uh, right. Not that he was. And, he but that's so, it's so masterfully because he, he goes up there, right? But then you see the people on the ground looking at him. And you're like, wait, is this really happening? Yeah. And there's that one woman who opens her window. And I was paying close attention the second time I watched it. She opens the window only after he's gone past to make it look like she's watching him rise when in fact she's just looking up to see if he's on the state on up there or not it's pretty clever it is and um most you know most of the uh, of these sequences where there are other people and you're trying to judge whether this is reality or not they have a real life explanation like flying yeah. through the city it's a taxi driver you know uh right. for this it was like he just took the stairs you know and, and he was standing on top of a building not flying um and when he was smashing all the stuff in his dressing room when um <laughs> not Zach Galifianakis. Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, he's doing yeah. it with his hands. Why would he suddenly switch, even though he doesn't know Zach Galifianakis is there? You know, so they all have this explanation. <laughs> all and that goes back to the. I go goes back to the acting thing too, right? Like he got, uh, Zach Galifianakis walks in and he's smashing everything, and he's like, "Are you okay?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, 
yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. He's like trying to play it off like nothing's wrong, even though <laughs> like everything's been smashed. And then the other girl comes in and like to talk to him. And he's like, oh, I think I cut my hand shaving when like there's glass and just like broken stuff all over the entire room. I think yeah. I cut my hand <laughs> shaving. How would you not know? <laughs> yeah uh, it's pretty good but yeah i do like that line too uh it's just it's funny so okay joey i think you know what time it is it is time for us to go a little deeper okay right, so i, I want to go first you want to go first because go first yes because we already we we're talking about this right now the the deal what's the deal with michael keaton's superpowers so obviously throughout the movie we uh don't really like it's kind of ex- kind of explained kind of implied that it's what's really happening isn't really happening when he's moving stuff there's obviously he could be moving it you know when he's opening the door with his with his mind or whatever when he's flying he's in the taxi cab there's all rational explanations the only exception is the very end right yes and so i feel like we should talk about how that all comes together so he so he gets out of the window right and sam walks into the room and she says oh what you know, she's like, where is he? She looks out the window. She looks down and clearly doesn't see anything. Looks up and she smiles as if she can see him flying. Yes, she can. Yeah, and, and that is the one that's, I still don't have a, a reasonable explanation. Actually, I think I kind of do, but I want to hear what you think. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think many of this last parts of this movie are meant to be metaphoric. For example, uh, when he's walking through the uh the backstage before he gets to the stage he crosses paths with one of those reindeer indicating that it may be some sort of dream sequence yes the um yeah. and then when he shoots himself like you see the blood and everything and so you're not sure like what the, what really happened and at the end obviously he shoots his, like, his nose is shot off which is an indication of his you know bird-like quality because he kind of looks like a bird when he has that stuff on his face and he gets a new beak which is kind of a very you know bird uh specific anatomy part i guess i could say his his uh gauze <laughs> on his face looks just like the Birdman mask yes it's crazy and obviously that's on purpose when she so when she sees him outside i think this is again like part of that whole sequence of like is any of this real i guess the whole movie is like that but especially that last part and i think this is supposed to be metaphoric of her uh like belief in him again she again admires him she again loves him and can see him as he sees himself as someone who can fly as someone who is above other people and you know Maybe she she's brought into the same delusion that he is in, but in a not not so not so uh, negative way, I guess, in a way that's more shared and loving. Okay, so you're saying that maybe that, like, where does reality stop? I guess is my question. Does he actually jump out the window? Did he kill himself? I don't know. I think I think we have to question everything up and uh, everything that happens as soon as he grabs the gun. Ooh, okay. I'm going to take it a step further and say we have to question okay. everything that happens as soon as he finishes his conversation with Tabitha. Because he leaves oh, really? and you start hearing the uh, that guy outside who's doing the monologue. He sounds like a crazy guy, but if you listen, he actually is doing clearly a monologue. And you- it's, a, it's, a, it's a quote from Macbeth. I actually have that exact quote memorized. It's the only quote from Shakespeare besides a sonnet that I have memorized. 
It's great. So, I uh, it I had great. the subtitles on, which made it a lot easier to enjoy, understand the whole thing. <laughs> but he walks outside and he goes into the liquor store and buys a bottle of liquor and then um, goes in for $6.50 too, um, which I think is pretty affordable. Good deal. Yeah. And then, especially in New York, yeah. And uh, it was a cool liquor store too, with all the like lights up. You like walk through a tunnel of lights. Uh, anyways, that's not the point. The point <laughs> is that he starts drinking, and he drinks himself into a stupor and falls asleep on the sidewalk. And then everything after that, I think, doesn't happen. I think really? I don't know if you can say for certain what did happen, but I think there's a chance maybe he gave himself alcohol poisoning and died on the street there. And everything else is like kind of a dream sequence where it's he, you know, gets up. Now he's flying, but he's not flying, right? And right. then he gets back to the show and everything goes right. He uh like the the show goes perfectly. His ex-wife kisses him before the show starts, and um instead of dying when he shoots himself in the head, all his dreams come true and everything goes perfectly. Hmm. So I think that that's really good. Yeah. I think <laughs> that after he drank the alcohol, he died. And then everything that happened after that is kind of the dream sequence at, or, um, you know, afterlife where everything's so just he, perfect. Like, so he finally embraces his Birdman side and starts to like see himself as above other people, see himself for the true power that he can p- possess. And that's right. I mean, that's when reality really starts to fall, fall apart. I mean, stuff starts exploding and everything. The Birdman addresses the audience. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what that means, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like, how could it? How could that dream sequence happen if he's dead or whatever? You know, but uh, maybe he's in a coma. I don't know. But I noticed after he passed out on the sidewalk, everything changed. Everything started going exactly how it needed to go, and. Uh, and that would explain how the end there, maybe he does actually fly out the window and his daughter is like, yes, good, he's flying because none of this is real. Wow. Okay. So that's my theory. <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> um, okay. So some of my deeper uh, topics here. Why do they say the word balls so much? Because balls are funny. It's, well, like, they, they so many examples of it. There's, like, the, uh, at the beginning. When he first starts, yeah, the very, like, one of the very first quotes, right? Smells like balls. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also other things. Um, there's the, um, the Ed, uh, Edward Norton, not Edward Norton. It's the the part where he's talking about his balls getting tapped on with a tiny no, Edward Norton says it too, doesn't he? He does. He says it. He, he says, says fondle it my his- balls. Fondle my balls. Yeah. yeah. Play with my balls. Yeah, play with my balls. And also, um, uh, there, there's just there's so many examples of it. Oh, Zach Alphanakis says it as well because um, you know that where um, Michael Keaton is like questioning his like his opening night and he's like, I don't think I can do this. And then Zach yeah, yeah. Alphanakis is like, No, like you you did this. Uh, you 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 created the show that took balls. You know, it's there's all these examples of them using the word balls, and I'm not exactly sure um, what the reason is. My theory is kind of like uh, in Swiss Army Man, where they kept on having farting in there. It was their way of um, kind of bringing their own art down to a level that's a little bit more um, palatable, or maybe on the same level of their audience, so mm. they don't seem like they're trying they're being too uh, uh, pretentious, you know? That makes sense. To, uh, trying to bring it more into the real world. Trying to make it seem like less of a, a movie or less of a stage play and more of like something that's really happening. 
I mean, that makes sense. A lot of the stuff you're seeing is like messy rooms and like dirty stuff. Him sleeping on the street and like looking like a mess. All of that is like emblematic of something that might really happen more so than something that's like dramatically relevant. Right. And I think they kind of get the best of both worlds by being like, we're doing this, but we're only going to say the word balls. Like they're winking at you. They're like, yeah, it's real, but we're doing that on purpose too. You know, um, that's funny. Which I, I, I like too. I didn't notice that the first time, but this stuff's like, wait, why are they saying Maybe balls because they're so always rolling. Oh, oh I, I like it. I like it. Um, okay. And um, I guess this will, this is our last deeper topic yeah. here is um, Ed, Edward Norton has this line that we heard earlier um, where he says that popularity is the uh, slutty cousin of prestige. Yes. And I, I don't know. I think that that's interesting because uh, you can't really have one without the other. If you're totally unpopular, um, then there's, there's no way that you can have prestige because who's going to think that what you've done is prestigious if, if you don't have any sort of popularity. So I'm wondering, can you have prestige without popularity? Is prestige a product sure of popularity? I have a great example for you. Okay. Jake Paul. So that's popularity without prestige. Yes. Oh, you're saying prestige without pro- popularity. Yes. I think that there's a certain, you have to strike a balance. You have to appeal to the masses to be noticed at all. I don't know if I agree with that either. I think there are, I mean, I could, there are certain, I mean, okay, what about this director himself? What's his name? Inharitu, right? Sure. This is one of the first movies that he ever, he ever directed. He certainly didn't have much prestige before this, but after this, he or it didn't uh, popularity, I should say. He had plenty of prestige, but after this, he went on to direct The Revenant as well. And um, I don't know, like there's a lot to say, a lot of attraction. I think I feel toward prestige more so than popularity. Like popularity just like is so gross or could be so easily obtained, whereas prestige lasts forever, just like Edward Norton says. I don't know. It's kind of a I don't know. Maybe maybe you've said it exactly right. It is kind of a a delicate balance. Right. But no, I think you make a really good point, especially with using this director as an example, because I think you can, the movie Birdman is popular, but uh, as a movie going fan, you might not be like, oh man, I I really love that Alejandro, you know, he's so good. That's why I love Birdman. But if you look at his career and you, you see the awards he's won and you see the movies he's directed, you'd be like, wow, what a great director. He's responsible for these films. That's amazing. Like you, it's hard to come up with an example because obviously anyone we can think of is going to be popular. Right, but I would argue that he maybe isn't all that popular. You know, I don't think I think yeah. most directors. But aren't I mean, all I, that I think there's a I think there may be even better examples of this. It's just hard to name them because we can't think of them because they're not popular. Exactly. <laughs> right. But if we're just talking about which one you'd have, want to have more of, more popularity or more prestige, would you rather be? It seems like presti- popularity comes with all these other hurdles too. Things like you know like rabid fans or like having your your eyes all the eyes in the world constantly on you you know right. every time you make a mistake or anything like that if you're popular that's going to be noticed but if you just have prestige then people maybe will maybe more willing to forgive you sure or even having the responsibility to remain popular doing things that you otherwise don't you don't think are 
that great so that you can keep doing it. There's there's like a classic vine career path to work in obscurity until you make one vine that goes viral. And then you, for the rest of your vine career, you were just rehashing that one thing you did. Um, Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> it is so gross, and uh, but it's a way to maintain that popularity. So maybe it's not sure. worth it. You know, maybe you should aim more for the prestige. Um, the prestige. I feel like the prestige lasts longer. Yes, and also the prestige. And is it's a hard, great movie. much harder to get to. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't know a, name, a movie called Popularity. <laughs> is that is that ironic? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, all right. I think uh, I think we've gone on. Oh, and I just bumped my desk. So I'm sure you guys heard that. Um, all right, I think we've discussed this movie enough, so it is time f- to deliver our ratings. Joey, would you like to go first? I, of course, would like to go first. Uh, I give this movie one brand new honker. <laughs> you know, like a, a, you know, oh, a honker. A new, oh, a nose. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Um, mine is actually kind of on the on the same line. I give this movie uh, a congratulatory a congratulatory bouquet of flowers that you cannot smell. Ooh, that's poetic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I loved it. Uh, Birdman, great movie. I already knew it was great, and now I feel like I understand it a little bit better. Uh, Joey, what's next? Our next uh, episode is going to be our fiftieth episode of Affable Chat, which means we're doing a special fiftieth episode edition we're not going to talk about a movie we're just going to talk about the podcast talk about uh the last year and going forward the next years so tune in for that uh, and hear us talk about what's going to come up and uh make sure you tune in because we may have some sort of reward if you um tune in and find out what that is yes so be on the lookout follow us on twitter look at our social media and stuff um and yeah tune in to our next episode it's gonna be our very special 50th and uh it's not 50th anniversary right it's just (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) we're uh the date doesn't matter because we are just over a year at this point as far as how long we've been making episodes but we're reaching the big 5-0 so get excited uh we're gonna be talking about that uh next week But I think that wraps it up for uh, Birdman. So for Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Affable Chat. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. If you have a question, comment, or want to request something for us to talk about, you can reach us at our Twitter account, at Affable Chat, or our email, affablechat at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.